0: The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at NorrisFerryChurch.org. Good morning, church. How are y'all this morning? Good. That video gets me pumped up. Worship gets me pumped up. And we are ready to dive into God's Word. Go ahead and, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, as you're, you're turning there... One, I just want to give the same warning that I gave out on social media today, if, I mean this week. If you didn't see my post, I warned parents that today we'll be talking about marriage in the bedroom. And so if you are not ready for that conversation to be had on the, the drive home, then you may want to take a minute and um, take your kids to class. Um, or this could be a great discipleship opportunity and you can use it, definitely. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a minute to decide, talk with your spouse if you want to take them to class. If I don't see anyone moving, we'll dive right in. All right, y'all are ready for these conversations. That's great. All right, let me give you an idea of how culture views sex and marriage, okay? Based on our study, based on a study by the National Survey of Family Growth, by the age of 19, 68% ladies and 69% males have had sex. Over 50% of individuals ages 18 to 24 indicated that their most recent sexual partner was casual or dating. And 74% of women engage in sex before marriage. According to the CDC, the average number of partners for men between the ages of 25 and 44 is 6. And 21% of men, 15 to 44, have had more than 15 partners. And 9% of women have had more than 15 partners. I also saw in these stats as I studied that 30% of men will have extramarital affairs. Here's some good news the divorce rate is slowly declining. It's about 50% still, but it's slowly declining. However, the reason for the decline is because younger couples are resorting to cohabitation rather than marriage. According to the Pew Research Center, less than half a million couples were cohabitating in 1960. Less than half a million couples were cohabitating in 1960. Compared to 2010, there were seven and a half million couples cohabitating. So it is clear that our culture has a self-indulgent, a hedonistic view on sex. Sex is considered as a natural appetite. So when we have that need, we are free to choose where we want to go, right? It is essentially saying, have sex with anyone you want. The body is a a morally neutral zone. As long as the adults are consenting, there are no moral implications, right? Our, Our culture today says sex is a way to express yourself, to be yourself, to find yourself. You just do you. Pursue sex however you want. With media and songs pushing one night stands and and shows encouraging sleeping with multiple people. It's just casual. As I was studying, I saw a new term that broke my heart that's becoming more and more popular. That term, ethical non monogamy. Ethical non monogamy. What this means is that you can be in a relationship, but it's okay if you go and sleep with someone else. Ethical non-monogamy. On the flip side, a professor with the University of Georgia did a study with, with married couples, and she estimated that about 15% of them have not had sex with their spouse in the last six months to a year. Fifteen percent of married couples have not had sex with their spouse in the last six months to a year, and yes, this included a variety of different reasons, from boredom to tiredness to aging, to job loss, to infidelity, to porn addiction, relational conflicts, and even some for religious reasons. And although you may think that that 15 percent is a small number, it's happening. And it's happening even in in marriages here in this room today. And even with all this going on in our culture, even with, with all the sexual immorality, the view of sex that the United States has, that our culture has, this is exactly where we find the Corinthians. This is exactly what we see here today in 1 Corinthians 7. This is exactly what's going on in Corinth. Okay? So the church in Corinth, they wrote Paul a letter. And in this letter, they included a slogan. And in the passage today that we're going to cover, Paul responds to their slogan that they wrote and shows them that this is not the right view of sex and marriage. Paul, he helps them to put on their biblical glasses and shares with them a biblical view on sex and marriage. The idea that Paul brings here is that when you are called in Christ, when the the gospel transforms your life, it also transforms your circumstances and it also transforms your view on things. It can transform culture's view. And so Paul, he comes to them and he says, this is not the biblical view. Let me, help you put, let me help you put on your biblical glasses and let me help you see what the biblical view is for sex and marriage. So Paul, he lovingly addresses, he lovingly writes them and he says, their view on marriage is not right. Let me help you to transform your view. And he lovingly addresses their view on marriage. And he he shows them that marriage, it's a gift. Marriage is a gift. Marriage is a gift. Here's my two points today. Marriage is a gift for sexual purity. And marriage is a gift for a lifetime. Pray with me before we jump into God's word. Father, may you allow us to see how you created Marriage and sex within marriage for a purpose. Father, that you created marriage and sex within marriage as as part of your plan, that it was created for good. Father, may we see that marriage and sex within marriage as a gracious gift from you, a gift that helps us stay pure. And a gift that was given to us to be a picture of your covenant that you have made with us. Father, help me to be clear with your word this morning, because it is on your word that I stand. We love you. Amen. All right, verse 1. Let's jump into verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. All right, let's pause here. I'm going to set the stage just a little further. Paul is now transitioning his letter to respond to specific instructions, sorry, to respond to specific questions, not instructions, specific questions or statements that the Corinthian church wrote him about. Okay, so you're going to see this now concerning appear six times until the end of the book. And when he writes, now concerning, that should point your attention to, okay, this is, what, this is a part of the letter that Paul got, and now he's responding to that. He is helping them see a biblical perspective on whatever they're writing about, all right? So we come here to chapter one, and this is the first one in the book. And Paul, he quotes a slogan from the Corinthian church. He says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And I want you to know that Paul agrees with that statement only if you are single, okay? But here in chapter, in chapter 7, verse 1, and the following verses up to verse 5, Paul is not specifically addressing singles, but he's addressing sex within marriage, Okay? So he's not focused on singleness. We'll get to singleness here a little later, but he's addressing this this slogan within marriage. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You see, the Corinthian believers, they are not having sex with their spouses because they can get their needs met elsewhere prostitution, as we saw in chapter six, is in abundance. And so they don't need to go to their wife to, to get their needs met, but they go to anywhere else in the city to meet with prostitutes to fulfill their needs. And it was common here in this culture that men would have mistresses, they would have concubines, and they would have a wife, right? Mistresses were there to meet their needs, concubines were there to do chores in their house and their wife was only there to just raise up their kids and take care of their estate. And so what Paul is seeing that's happening here in Corinth is that these husbands and these wives, they're not having sex with each other. There's a lack of it going on. It is rare. The only reason they're having sex is to just procreate, to have kids. And so because of this going on, wives started leaving and divorcing their husbands to to try to find a better one. And even some some others, husband and wives, just stopped having sexual relations of any kind because... They thought that this is what was morally good. They saw what was going on in culture and they said, that's bad. That's gross. I don't want any part of this. And so I actually understand on a deeper spiritual level than anyone else. And so I understand that abstinence actually is the way to live a better life. So we see these two things going on and Paul comes to them and says, no, no, no. This is not my view on sex and marriage. This is not the Bible, the Bible's view on sex and marriage. This is not the gospel transforming view on sex and marriage. Marriage is a gift. Marriage is planned by God. And one of the purposes of marriage is sexual purity. See, Paul here, he's not going to address the whole purpose of marriage. He doesn't focus on that, but he he focuses on that marriage is a gift, and it's a beautiful gift for sexual purity. Look with me at verse 2. Marriage is a gift for sexual purity. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul starts in verse two and he says, because of the temptation to sexual sexual immorality, because of everything that I wrote about in chapter six, because you guys are running to prostitutes, because you guys are becoming one with a prostitute, because of the fact that many of you believers are sinning against your own body, I command you, because of this temptation that is so rampant in your society and in your culture, Hold fast to your wife. Hold fast to your husband. See, Paul, he's changing their view and saying, look, you can live in Corinth, and Corinth needs the gospel. Right? You can be believers in this culture, but instead of you living just like the culture, instead of you running to your mistresses, run away from them. And run to your wife, run to your husband, hold fast to each other, right? God has designed marriage for this person, for for that purpose, for you to hold fast to one another and become one flesh, right? Marriage was created for man and woman, husband and wife, to have each other. And that word there, have, is not just talking about the legal side of marriage, but also the sexual side. Paul is urging them to practice the covenant faithfulness that God has gifted to them. And as they do that, it will help them steer clear from sexual temptation. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He continues on to continue to explain his his point with another command. Look at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her, say it out loud with me, her conjugal rights. Come on, everyone can say it. We're breaking the ice here. Say conjugal rights. Thank you. Come on, I can say sex. You guys can say conjugal rights. We're good. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Husbands, don't be elbowing your wife right now, okay? Just wait till I finish this, this passage. It's not a good time. It's not a good time. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Wife, elbow your husband. Paul says, look, when you are married, you entered into a covenant to pay to your wife or pay to your husband what is owed? That's the translation here, to pay what is owed. So when you said, I do, you're also saying, I will. You said, I will complete my responsibility to have sex with you. From the beginning in Genesis, we see marriage involved leaving parents and holding fast to your spouse. And what? them becoming one. What does that mean? Sex. Sex. You can say sex too. It's okay. Yes, it means having sex. This is a part of what marriage is. Paul, he's directly addressing their slogan, their slogan that it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman by saying, look, y'all are wrong. God created woman because it's not good for man to be alone right? We all know what happens when man's alone. If you do not have sexual relations with your wife, you are breaking your covenant obligations that you have made to her. So Paul, he commands them to fulfill this. And as they commit to having sex, it is also a natural way to help each other avoid sexual temptation. But see this, it's not that one person has more rights than the other. That's not the case. But you both have equal rights, right? And this is contrary to the Corinthian culture. Men are, are demanding and claim that they, they have more rights. But this is not the biblical view that Paul is using to transform their view on sex and marriage, The husband has rights, the wife has rights, and their rights help both of them to avoid sexual temptation. So do you see this mutual authority that Paul is bringing attention to? Look at verse four. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. But he doesn't end there. He says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, But the wife does. So you have this mutual authority over each other. And oftentimes we have this negative view on authority. Oftentimes we consider authority to to rule over someone in in a demeaning way. To rule over someone to to get what we want. But this is not the view that Paul is talking about. Paul is saying there is a, a participation that both parties are are participating, uh, a mutual agreement in sexual intercourse, right? It's not that we are just robots and we just go and have sex or that we abuse our authority and, and demand sex from each other. No, that's not the idea here. The idea here is Ephesians 5, that there's this loving, kind, selflessness relationship going on this loving respectful relationship it's very much has the focus of of giving to each other rather than taking rather than getting and that's what marriage is giving oneself to another And in this giving relationship, as you serve one another, as marriage is this beautiful gift, God intends it to lead you back to one another rather than away from each other. God intends it to lead you back to your spouse rather than to someone else. And Paul, he continues with another command in verse five. And he says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, except perhaps maybe by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul, he hits them with another command to show that marriage is a gift for sexual purity. We saw at the beginning that he said, because of your culture, because of sexual immorality, hold fast to one another. Be selfless towards one another. Serve one another. Do not deprive one another, because if you deprive one another, guess what? Satan is going to jump on that because he is roaming around like a roaring lion. And the one thing that he wants to devour for sure is your marriage. Because your marriage is a beautiful picture of Christ's love for his bride, Christ's love for the church. And if Satan can destroy that, he's doing good work. So he says, Paul says, do not deprive one another. Because Satan is going to come and he is going to destroy it because we all know we do not have good self-control. And Satan's going to sneak in there. So do not go long periods of time without having sex. But then he says, exception. But if you do, two things. You both agree. You both have to agree. And two, don't make it a long period of time. Agree on the time. Don't make it a long period of time. And if you do that then, only do it for a period of time to seek intimacy with the Lord. Why? So that your love for God would deepen. And because of your love for God deepens, then your love for one another deepens. And then come back together again. Make sure That you both agree that it's for a short amount of time only to seek intimacy with the Lord and come back together again because marriage is a gift given by God for sexual purity. All right, so what do we do with this? I'm sure probably more than half of the room would say, I'm done. We're good. We can go home. I got what I, I needed to hear. Sex is good my wife, my body is my wife's. That's awesome. This is great. I'm ready to go. Let's wrap this up. But I'm not going to let you go that easy. All right. Let me summarize and we'll get in some practical steps. Paul, he's basically stating how important a healthy sex life is in order for us to help our spouse in fighting temptation. You see, the, the physical aspect of marriage is much, much more than we might think. is much, much more important than we might think. That physical connection that as a husband and wife that you have, it is extremely important. Now, this is not the only purpose for sex and marriage, but it is just one beautiful gift of why God has given us marriage and given us sex in marriage, okay? Now, I know, and as I was working on this all week, I could just continue to think about all the pain, all the brokenness, and all the sin that comes in marriage and sex. And it abounds. And my heart broke. And I wish I had a ton of time to just walk through a lot of that with you but I don't. And so just a few things I want to focus on and mention and address briefly. First, I want you to know that Paul is not saying you can demand sex from your spouse. He is not saying that. These verses are not to be used against your spouse so that you get what you want. Do not use these verses to manipulate and use your spouse. Baby, I, I'm just struggling with temptation right now, and it's easier for me to avoid sexual temptation if you just sleep with me. No. That's wrong, and it is gross. Do not use Scripture for your benefit. Yes, sex helps you avoid temptation, but your ability to resist temptation is not based on your spouse's willingness to have sex. Because if she's out of town, where are you going? You're not going to her. See, sex is not to be used as a tool. It's not to be used to manipulate your relationship, to get what you want. It's not something that you hold over someone. It's not something to withhold just so that you get what you want. Do not use the scripture. Do not use sex as a weapon. Okay. Hear this. Sex stops being what it is meant to be when it becomes about the other person meeting your needs. Sex stops being what it is meant to be when it becomes about the other person meeting your needs. You need to be asking, how am I serving my spouse? The purpose of marriage is not for you to get, right? That's not the purpose of marriage, but it is that you should be focused on giving everything for your spouse. You want to know what will help your sex life? Who's going to respond no to that? That's why I laugh. Uh, Instead of demanding or manipulating each other for sex, I think both of you need to understand that you are called to serve one another. And if you are focused on serving the other above anything else, then this is going to transform your marriage, it'll transform your sex life, and it's going to be a pleasing relationship to God. Second, what if your spouse continues to say no to having sex? Now, I'm not talking about the, you know, few times where your wife or husband's like, no, not tonight, honey, not tonight. That's going to be, that, that's a different day, a different topic we'll have to cover. But what do you do if you are in a situation and your spouse is just depriving you? Or your spouse just consistently says no? What do you do? First, go back to my first point that I talked about. Do not use scripture as a weapon. Do not do that. Do not say you have to give me sex because this is what the Bible says. But what you need to do is first look at yourself and say, okay, am I being a loving husband? Am I being a respectful wife? Have I loved my spouse spouse adequately outside the bedroom? Am I being a good spiritual leader? Am I showing Christ-like love? Am I respecting my husband and what he does? Am I showing him love and affirming him and building him up? So first, look at your own life. And after you do that, after you do that, and your spouse still is saying no and depriving you, then you need to lovingly approach her. You don't use scripture as a weapon, but you lovingly approach your spouse. And if there's a a deeper problem, and I think through your loving confrontation of asking, Honey, is, is there a reason why you're not interested in sex? And coming to her gently, coming to him gently, and sitting down with him, and asking that question, I think that question will help and guide you and point you guys to see if there's a deeper issue. And if there is a deeper problem, if this question reveals a larger heart issue, some type of addiction, abuse, pain, suffering, maybe in the the past, whatever that is, boredom in marriage, if that's the case, seek counsel, okay? Do not try to do this on your own because Satan will continue to put lies in your head. I don't look good enough or my wife doesn't love me anymore. Whatever that is, whatever that reveals, seek counsel and find someone to help you work through that. But as you seek counsel, I want you to remember to always be patient. Why? Because our loving father, God, has been patient with us. As we continue to sin, as we continue to be unfaithful to him, he continues to be faithful to us. And so be patient with your spouse. And then lastly, right now, if your spouse is depriving you, if you aren't getting what you deserve, I want to ask you, what are you struggling to? What are you, what are you running to in that struggle? What are you running to in that struggle? Because I want you not to use that time to, in that moment, think my wife, my spouse, my husband is not giving me what I deserve. And so I can justify my sin and I can run and commit adultery. Or I can turn on the computer late at night and look at porn. That situation, that circumstance does not justify your sin. What you need to understand, what you need to know is that Christ and God should be your contentment that our satisfaction should be found in Christ. And yes, sex in marriage should be a picture of that, a picture of the glory of Christ and point us to that. But if your sex life is a mess right now, if your marriage is a mess right now, that does not mean that you can commit adultery. But find your contentment in Christ and know that God has called you in this place for a reason. God has put you in this situation for a purpose. Run to him, listen to him. This is something we're going to hit on next week in verse 17. But consider, God, why am I here in this place right now and say, I'm going to run to you and I'm going to find my contentment, my joy, my peace in you and you alone. I'm not going to run to anything else. Okay. So for the singles in this room, What does this mean for you? Let's look at verses 6 through 9 real quick. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Pastor Tracy's going to cover this at the end of, of chapter 7. Paul really dives into singleness and all that entails. And so he's going to cover that here in a few weeks. But just real quick, we simply see that Paul has been given this gift of singleness. He's been given a gift to live without a wife, without the commitments of marriage. And we see that singleness and marriage are not simply what the individual chooses, but it is what God has gifted to them so that they can live as God has called them to live. So some of you are single in this room today, and God has given you self-control and contentment. And praise the Lord for that. He has gifted to you self-control and contentment to be devoted to him and praise Jesus for that. And then there's some who are single in this room today, and they're wondering, why has God not given me someone? I desire to have a family. I desire to have kids. These are good desires. God, why are you not gifting me with that? And that is a, a hard a hard thing to understand. But all I can point you to and all I can share with you is that right now, God has gifted you with singleness. And so I urge you in your stage of singleness to set your mind on God's calling in in your life and pursue it. Seek him with full devotion. Ask him to provide you with extraordinary amount of self-control. And then if he gives you the gift of marriage later on down the road, then be quick and say I do and be quick and say I will. So whatever stage you're in, if you're in singleness, focus on why has God given me this gift and how can I best use this gift to glorify him? So now we're going to jump down to verse 10. So far, we've seen that marriage is a gift for sexual purity, and now we're going to see that marriage is a gift for a lifetime. Marriage is a gift for a lifetime, no matter if you're married to a believer or married to an unbeliever. Marriage is a gift for a lifetime. Look at verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her, her husband. And the husband shall not should not divorce his wife. Here we see that Paul very clearly makes a command directly from the Lord, right? Not I, but the Lord, and he urges believers to obey Jesus' commands that a wife should not separate from her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Separate, divorce, don't let that confuse you. It means the same thing. Okay, and Paul's like, no, guys, your your marriage, your covenant that you have made with your wife, it is for a lifetime. Do not divorce. But I want you to be mindful here that Paul, he's not answering specifically the question or the question of, well, can someone get divorced? He's not looking at the exceptions of divorce, okay? That's not what he's talking about. But he's talking specifically about these people who have stopped having sex with their spouse because they thought that that made them more spiritual. They thought that 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 made them more spiritual. And so, so then if they're not having sex with their spouse, then they don't need to have a spouse. And so they were divorcing them. Or he has people there that, that are abiding to Roman law in this Roman colony where Roman law said, you can divorce for any stated reason. And so they would just get divorced for anything. Because I had to eat quinoa salad last night. They would divorce. And so Paul, he, he comes to them. And he says, I know divorce is common. I know these things are going on in your culture, in your society. But as believers, remember Jesus teaching on the matter. Marriage is for a lifetime. Do not divorce. Remember that Jesus said, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Don't just go and get a divorce because that's the easy road. Paul says, no matter who walks out on who, as a Christian, you do not push for divorce, but you strive. You strive for reconciliation. You strive to do that hard work and work out your relationship because marriage is a beautiful gift for a lifetime. Do not give up. And then Paul turns and he, he looks at a different set in the crowd and he continues and he, he moves to ad- address a different situation that was starting to happen. And in verse 12, he says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she, contents, she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul says, look, this is me talking, not the Lord. But we all know that Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we cannot just push aside his words, but these are words that were given to Paul by God. And Paul says, let me give you some pastoral advice for marriage relationships that Jesus didn't directly address. So he says, to the rest, to the, those who who. Uh, whose spouse has become a Christian. What do you do if you're in that situation, if you are married and and one of you becomes a, a Christian? Paul, in the back of his head, he knows that divorce is common, and this would probably be an easy excuse for divorce, that the spouse is going one way, walking in obedience to the Lord, and the other is walking in order to do whatever they want to do. And so they obviously are going separate ways. And so let's get a divorce. And Paul's saying, no, do not do that. If your unbelieving spouse wants to stay married to you, then stay married. Don't go get in divorce. Why? Because your spouse is made holy because of you. What? Because I became a believer. Now my spouse is a believer. No. No. But the idea here is that as I became a believer, as I understand Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, his grace and his mercies and his blessings upon me, as I decide that I want to walk in obedience to God's word, guess what? Your spouse is seeing that your spouse gets to be a part of that. Your spouse gets to see that you're reading God's word. Your spouse gets to hear scripture. Your spouse gets to see that you're, you're praying to, to a God and you have a real relationship with him and you love him. And this God is pouring out these blessings upon you. This God is, is answering your prayers. And so this spouse gets to, to see that you are transformed by the, by the glory of God. And, and what you say and what you do is all for him. And the spouse is, is seeing these, these blessings. He's seeing that your life has been transformed. And Paul says, do not leave this unbelieving spouse. Do not divorce them because there is hope that they will come to know the same love that you have for the Father." There is hope there because they are starting to be impacted and and see the transforming work of God's word, of of God in that believer's life. So there is hope that they will one day become holy and set apart as a child of God. And that's why Paul says, this is is the same for your kids, that as your kids live in a household They may may not be believers yet, but as they're in a Christian home, as you teach them scripture, as they hear scripture, as they see God's answer to your prayers, there is hope that God is going to change their life. There is hope that they will one day, too, be changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 15, but if the unbelieving spouse leaves, let it be so. The Christian believer is not tied to the marriage anymore. If the unbelieving spouse leaves and divorces, then the Christian spouse should continue in peace. Paul is saying, as a Christian, you are not obligated to seek reconciliation to the unbelieving spouse who has abandoned you. A lot of commentators say that that unbelieving spouse is dead, is dead in their sins. They've left you. They're, They're dead. And so a lot of commentaries, uh, believe, commentators believe that you can remarry. And so Paul here is, is saying, if they leave you, do not struggle with that pain of wanting to reconcile with them. They're gone. They've left you. They're dead. But know that God has given you peace. Now walk in this peace. Be okay in your situation because of what God has granted to you. He is saying that the believer should continue in their life in circumstances without distress of a lifelong hope to reconcile with with the unbeliever. And so if you're in this situation today, if you are married to an unbeliever, I just want to encourage you as Paul does, to not lose hope continue in your situation with the peace of God. Continue to wash yourself with the word. Continue to pray at the dinner table. Continue to share what God is teaching you. Continue to cry out to God to save your spouse. Because you do not know if God is going to save them, but there is hope. So stay with your spouse because marriage is a gift, a gift for a lifetime. Now, if you're in the other situation where you are a believer and your unbelieving spouse has left you or is about to leave you, I can't imagine the pain that you're going through. But what I can say is that this church, Norris Ferry Community Church, is standing here with you. And as your brothers and sisters in Christ, as your fathers and mothers, we are here to help you. We are your Christian family. And we will be here for you. And so you can come to us and we can point you to the peace of Christ. We can help you walk in that situation. God is not going to leave you or abandon you. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. Just because your unbelieving spouse left doesn't mean that God left you. And so if that doubt creeps in, fight it come to us, let us help you. The church is here for you. So marriage is a gift from God. Marriage is a gift for sexual purity, and marriage is a gift for a lifetime. And even in all this brokenness and sin that is in sex and marriage today, we can still have hope. And our hope is found in the marriage of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, as a couple, go and read that together, right? Christian marriages, our marriages are fulfilling their purpose when they display what Ephesians 5 says, this profound mystery, this profound mystery, and that profound mystery is Christ's love for his bride. This profound mystery is Jesus Christ's life. And he is the only perfect husband. And he lays down his life for us through his sacrificial life and death. When he sacrifices all that he has, when he gives up his rights and does not exploit, use as a weapon or take advantage of them, he empties himself in order to meet the needs of an adulterous and sinful bride. This is why you can serve your spouse. Because Christ has first served you. Christ has given everything up. He did not use his rights to manipulate you to become a believer. He gave himself completely all. Selflessly. selflessly. And so now you can serve your spouse with selfless abandon. Not self-serving but you can serve them because Christ first served you. No matter how sinful that relationship may may look. See, Christ, he perfectly shows us what a selfless service looks like. And this selfless service overcomes our self-serving. Because of Jesus, we can serve our spouses. And even though we as sinners have broken our commitment over and over again, right god is gracious enough through christ he has committed himself to the church as his bride and this commitment through christ to his church it's eternal it's unshakable it cannot be broken So we can look at our spouse, we can extend to them grace and say, marriage is not about me, but rather it is a lifetime commitment to remain faithful to you. It's a lifetime commitment to remain faithful because that is the commitment that Christ has granted to me. And so every couple in this room every marriage in this room, I pray that you cherish this gift of marriage that God has given you. I hope you cherish it, and I hope that you cherish it and see that God has given you this gift for sexual purity and for a lifetime. Let's pray. Father, I know there's a lot of brokenness and sin in marriage and in sex in marriage. Between husband and wife, there's a lot of brokenness and sin between husband and wife, even in this room here this morning. And Father, my heart does ache for them. I pray for those who are on their last straw with their marriage, Father, those who are without hope, I pray that they will see marriage as a beautiful gift from you. I pray that they will take seriously the calling in which you have called them to sacrificially love and serve their spouse. Father, the only thing I can point them to that may give them some hope is your picture of marriage. That you gave yourself up for a sinful, adulterous bride washing her clean of her sin to present her without blemish. I pray that spouses in this room will serve one another as you have served us, that they will focus on giving to each other rather than getting, that they will be committed for a lifetime just as you are faithful to us for a lifetime over and over again. And Father, may we walk in our marriages this profound mystery that is found in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his blood that cleanses us. I pray that we would abide in your word in all aspects of life, specifically marriage. May we see that it is a beautiful gift given to us. We love you. Amen.